Hi, I'm John Olson. Thank you for joining us on the Public Policy This Week podcast. If you like what you hear on this show, please consider leaving us a review or telling a friend about us. Also, please consider subscribing so you'll receive a brand new edition of the show every time we make one available. We hope you find Public Policy This Week entertaining and informative, and thanks again for listening. Welcome to Public Policy This Week, a well-rounded weekly discussion of policy issues that frame today's American experience. Good morning, everyone. It's Friday, September 30th, and you've joined us for Public Policy This Week here on KYMN Radio. Public Policy This Week is dedicated to the honest and open discussion of public policy issues. Each week, we take a look into a specific policy subject, and we have guests on the show that are experts in their fields. To the greatest extent possible, we stay away from politics and instead concentrate on research, facts, and the experience and insight of our guests to help us to arrive at well-thought-out, comprehensive, integrative solutions to the shared challenges we face in society. Our program runs the gamut on policy subjects from neighborhood concerns to municipal, state, and even national-level issues. Everything is fair game on this show. Our objective is a civil, thoughtful dialogue about important public policy issues that convey ideas and solutions to move our society forward. Today on Public Policy This Week, we will be discussing the police service career of Todd Axtell, our guest in the KYMN studio. Additionally, we will be talking about the next phase of Todd's life as he embarks on a new career direction leading a consulting firm. As part of our discussion, we will cover the changes that have occurred in law enforcement over the 30-plus years of Todd's career, what attributes are necessary to be an excellent police officer, how to recruit, train, and retain excellent police officers, the effects of George Floyd's in-custody death and the defund the police movement on law enforcement, rebuilding community trust, and how to combat increases in violent crime, among other important law enforcement-related topics. Todd Axtell is the former chief of police for the city of St. Paul. He's also the co-founder, president, and CEO of the Axtell Group, a public safety, security, and law enforcement consulting firm focused on helping police departments and public and private organizations and their leaders improve efficiencies, minimize risk, and achieve strategic goals. Prior to launching the Axtell Group, Todd dedicated more than three decades of his professional life to public service, including 33 years with the St. Paul Police Department. He retired from Minnesota's Capital City Police Department earlier this summer. Throughout his career, Todd has championed trust, transparency, community engagement, diversity, and the highest levels of accountability. He and the team he surrounded himself with are credited with helping make the St. Paul Police Department a model of excellence that is emulated and admired throughout the state and country. Todd's accomplishments garnered local, state, and national attention. In fact, on June 1st of 2022, as proclaimed, as proclaimed by the governor of Minnesota, it was Chief Todd Axtell Day in both the city of St. Paul and the state of Minnesota. And Todd Axel continues to make his home in St. Paul with his wife. Uh, Chief Todd Axel, welcome to uh, Public Policy this week. It's a pleasure to have you on our program. Thank you very much. It's really great to be here, especially in, in an area where I spent a significant amount of my time growing up. 
Yeah, you were mentioning that uh, before we came on the radio. You actually spent, you grew up here in Northfield for a little while? Yeah, the first eight or nine years of my life I spent here uh, with my family. My father worked for Sheldahl when it was uh, uh, operating here in, in Northfield, and my mother was a hairdresser. Actually, a part of the time, a hairdresser in the building we're sitting in today. So I have some <laughs> great memories of, of fishing in the Cannon River uh, r- r- right behind us here. And, and just, uh, yeah, it's, it's, it's fun to, to see how the circle brings us back together here today. Yeah. Let's talk for a minute about Chief Todd Axtell Day in the state of Minnesota. <laughs> when I left the police department, they gave me a watch, and they gave me a dinner. And I'm sitting at a Minnesota Wild game this spring with my wife, Chris, and being honored in front of 19,000 people at the game is Chief Todd Axtell to announce this statewide Chief Todd Axtell Day. What did I do wrong in my career? (laughs) (laughs) Well, I I bet you still have that watch, and and people certainly aren't going to remember the fact that uh, I had a day. Uh, But but it was quite an honor to to be recognized and... and, uh, something I'll certainly never forget. But, you know, every every police officer, uh, every public servant, regardless of what we do, is is such a meaningful job. And today, as I reflect on how difficult it is to get uh, young people into policing, it's so important that everybody uh, uh, understands that their role in serving our communities is so critically important, and we need everybody paddling in the same direction. Let's get into it. Uh, getting ready for our program today. And this goes back to the mid-90s. I was thinking about why I wanted to become a police officer in the first place. It was the uniform. It was, it was about being part of a team. It was the training. It was the physical and mental challenges that are different than any other profession out there. The responsibility. And also this strong idea of protecting those in society that have a hard time protecting themselves. Go back 35 years. Can you recall why you wanted to make police work a career? Yes, absolutely. You know, my my, uh, grandfather was a police officer in Silver Bay, and he happened to die at the age of 47 of a heart attack. Mm. And so I was two years old at the time, and that really piqued my interest. And so throughout my the rest of my young life, I always wanted to uh, really follow in my grandfather's footsteps and, and honor him in that way. So from a very young age, I knew I wanted to be a police officer, and I knew what it meant to be a police officer. And to be in the service of others is so critically important. And, and, and we don't, certainly don't do it for the money, right? It's, it's not about the money. It's about being in the service of others. Right. Well, what was your training path into, into law enforcement? How did you get into it specifically? So I, I remember when I graduated, we ended up in Brainerd uh, for the last two years of my high school. So I, I graduated in 86, and at the time— my lifelong goal, again, was to be a police officer, so I went to a two-year program in Alexandria, uh, Votech, and, and that was going to be it. That was the ceiling for me. I wanted to be a, a police officer, and my first job was in Breezy Point and Pequot Lakes, working half-time in each of those agencies until 1989 when I came to St. Paul about a year and a half year later. And then, you know, over the last 33 years, there's been some incredible things that have have uh, uh, crossed my path in my career, which allowed me to retire as the chief. Uh, bo- both Joe and I ran for office a couple of years ago. I had an opportunity to talk with a, a number of police chiefs uh, back then, and, and 
I did a master's program at the Humphrey School a few years back, and I talked to some police chiefs then as well. And the Alexandria program is still sort of the model that everybody talks about. People who are in positions like you were as chief, uh, the model that they really look to and say, boy, that really worked well. It, tra- it, re- it was very effective at training law enforcement officers who eventually became leaders on their forces. Yeah, it really did create that great foundation. You have to show up every morning in your uniform, on time, squared away, work hard, study hard, and you you live right there in the area. It was a a great opportunity. So, uh, you know, I'm I'm not a law enforcement professional, but I happen to be sitting in a room today with two of them. Uh, Considerable police experience and accomplishments uh, in our studio this morning. My my co-host, Joe Moravchuk, had experience in Wisconsin's third largest department as a patrol officer, an evidence technician, a field training officer, and on the target enforcement and the major crimes teams before being promoted into administration. Uh, Chief Axtell, what what roles did you have within the St. Paul uh, Police Department throughout your career? Uh, What roles did you enjoy the most? Uh, And in what roles did you believe that you contributed the most to the department and the city? And, And perhaps were there initiatives that you launched while you were chief about which you are particularly proud? Yeah, thank you, and thank you both for for your service over over the many years to our, our community, and certainly uh, John to our country as a, a, a Navy veteran. Appreciate your service. You know, I I have been so fortunate in my career to have the opportunities I had specifically in St. Paul. I started as a patrol officer on the east side of St. Paul, and I did that for uh, quite a few years. Had opportunities to work uh, over the years after that in narcotics, vice. Uh, special investigations, um, the, the the gamut of the importance of the department, so investigations, and and uh, then I was able to, uh, I, I got lucky on a few tests, went back to school um, to uh, uh, to get my bachelor's and master's degree from St. Thomas, and and uh, then I started on the promotion track and and used my experiences to uh, help the units that I supervised over the years. As far as uh, some of the uh, accomplishments and I none of the accomplishments I ever talk about is is, is certainly uh, um, because of me it's because of the people that we surround ourselves with of course having the, gr- the the right people at the table and the right team and and making sure people sitting at your table aren't people who uh, will always agree with you is so important and that's that was kind of my mantra in the police department to have people challenging me I would say that the law enforcement career path Academy that we created just after I became chief in 2016 has been uh, such a great opportunity. We partnered with uh, AmeriCorps, Century College. I went out and pounded the pavement to get funding from uh, through our foundation to, to pay for this program where we have young people from our community who faced barriers into law enforcement, whether that's transportation, family issues, finances, but they're good people. They had a great heart for public service. So we paid them a livable wage to learn the police department for a few years to get their schooling. And since that time, we've hired over 30 police officers from that program, 30 police officers who will hopefully serve each 30 years plus. And so I I, I view that as as a big win, especially during times as we are now with the challenges we have with hiring people into the profession of law enforcement as I have had the opportunity to pin so many badges of the young people uh, when they become police officers. It's, it's uh, something that I'm very proud of. And the fact that we have young people from our community who look like our community 
who understand the community and have served three years getting to know the community before they ever answer their first 911 call is is just a game game changer for law enforcement yeah i think i was certainly grateful to be in major crimes and some of the other other opportunities i had with the police department certainly administration target enforcement but i think i was always a patrol officer at heart i really like that connection with the community you know the squad car is your office um you think you were a patrol officer at heart even though you eventually made it all the way up to the top and led yeah. an organization yeah always i mean that's why as, as you know joe that's why we get into the job is to to get behind that wheel and 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 get out there and meet with business people, our community members, uh, get to know everyone and, and have a positive impact on their lives and help protect victims of crime. That's why we get into the job. And then everything that happens after that is just uh, a product of that. Um, Chief Baxter, over the length of your career, you have no doubt seen many changes in police work. I can think of a few myself. Perhaps you'll recall the North Hollywood shootout in 1997, heavily armed bank robbers took on the LAPD who at the time were simply outgunned by automatic weapons. Many departments issued semi-automatic handguns as a result of that incident and long guns and squad cars, shotguns, MP5s, AR-15s. Of course, the Columbine shooting in Colorado in 1999, most departments had to implement new training protocols to combat these school shooters. And then most obvious, the changes to technology post 9-11. HD cameras, police body cameras, cell phones, and Stingray technology systems that track cell phones. What are some of the big changes that you observed or implemented during your long police career? Yeah, there's been a lot of change since I became a police officer back uh, in 1988. You know, for the first few years, you would get into a squad car. Uh, there would be no computer. Hmm. You would have a radio uh uh, in your the the police radio, of course, and then you have a uh, the handheld radio that you carry. And as a matter of fact, our chief at the time, Chief McCutcheon, who just uh, died about a year and a half ago, a wonderful man. I had so much respect for him. He actually pulled the AM/FM radios out of our squad cars <laughs> because he wanted us to pay attention to what was going on in the community. So <laughs> technology was really uh, not where we were at when I when I started. And then over the years, having a front row seat to see when we have our our, uh, the first computers that went in the, the squad cars and eventually uh, having the opportunity as chief in St. Paul to implement our body-worn camera program. And that really has been a, a game changer. And reflecting back on your earlier point about the Hollywood shootout, that, that had a significant impact on tactics and law enforcement For throughout sure. this country. We knew that we were outgunned at that time. Uh, shortly after I came on, in, uh, before I came on in St. Paul, we had revolvers. And, yep. and I actually carried a revolver when I was a cop up in Pequot Lakes and Breezy Point. And it's, uh, <laughs> I still remember it was a Ruger GP100 with a nickel plated with <laughs> yeah. a, a fancy, yeah. uh, you, know, you know, the fancy wood grip on it. And uh, so we've changed a lot over the years, putting uh, patrol rifles in our squad cars to make sure that we can protect our officers and help our officers protect our community has been critically important. The tactics that we use, Columbine, you mentioned, mm-hmm. making sure that uh, we no longer wait, we, we go in. We, um, we have to neutralize the shooter first and foremost to protect people. And uh, so, yeah, it's, it's been great to have a front row seat and actually be involved in, in some of the evolution of that technology. 
that the like the nine one one dispatch system that would have come on was it? Uh, you were fairly new uh, as an officer at that point. The nine one one dispatch system. Yeah, I don't remember exactly. Uh, uh, recall the year that that had happened, but but the nine one 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 system was in effect at that time. Okay. I remember back to uh, uh, you know, Breezy Point and Pequot Lakes, which are great police departments. But the uh, how I got that job is I. I pulled up at a restaurant in Pequot Lakes. Um, this is, you know, before <laughs> the internet really um, was prevalent. And, and I saw a young, uh, what I thought was officer, and I introduced myself, and it happened to be the chief of police who hired me on the spot <laughs> to, to work in Pequot, and I was on patrol the next day. So that was my, uh, that was my training program. And then, and then, so what I'm doing is I'm listening uh, on my first traffic stop, and I'm, I'm listening to what other officers in the county do, and they're dispatched out of the, out of Brainerd, the Crowing County Dispatch Center. So the squads would stop a car, and then they would ask for a case number. Mm-hmm. Well, I thought, well, okay, I better. I'm going to stop a car for a traffic violation, and I'm going to ask for a case number like the other officers are. <laughs> and there's a long pause, and the dispatcher says, uh, yeah, Pequot, you, you have your own case numbers. <laughs> So in our case number book was, was on our desk in the little office that we had. So I had a long way to go at that point. I do want to ask one more follow-up question on the technology side. The, the, the police body cameras, the body cameras that all the officers wear, what, what kind of an impact has that had on your officers? You know, there was certainly a lot of a trepidation when body-worn cameras came out with our officers. It was new technology. They they didn't know what the policy would really be, what it looked like. Uh, I felt the same way. Even, yeah. even with the new, when they put the, the cameras in squad cars at first, we would have VHS tapes in the trunk that we had to pull each night. Right. All of us, I think, were a little reluctant to that new technology. Right. And, and now what's happened over the years is our officers refuse to go on the street without it. Uh, it, it really um, it gives you a unique perspective as to what happens uh, on the street. And, and, and it's interesting. Sometimes we'd had a call in the Internal Affairs Unit in St. Paul since the uh, implementation of body-worn cameras, and somebody would call to complain about an officer, and and the uh, the person answering the phone in Internal Affairs says, well, that you know, we'll, we'll certainly look into that, and we'll pull the officer's uh, body-worn camera and take a look at the incident, and we'll send you a packet you can fill out. You know, and sometimes there's this long pause, <laughs> and they're like, uh, "What'd you say about a camera?" <laughs> That's exactly right. Yep. <laughs> and then all of a sudden, they want to withdraw their complaint. So it's it's helped officers. It's it's helped with transparency and trust. And trust has to be the foundation of everything a good police agency does in this country. It's 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 one of the biggest pillars we have. When I was a shift commander. Sure was nice to have those videos to review incidents. You could clear them up really fast when you see something on camera. Absolutely. I, I reflect back at uh, one of the last officer involved shooting deaths we had in St. Paul. The officer was driving eastbound on, I think it was Sherburne Avenue. Beautiful afternoon and a late summer day and minding his own business. And he's just rear-ended by a vehicle. And thankfully, you know, we had had the body-worn cameras for a while, so the officer's muscle memory was there to make sure that he tapped the camera right away, not knowing what was about to happen. And thank God he activated that body-worn camera because when he got out of a squad car, there was a man about five feet away coming at him with a knife trying to kill him. Hmm. The officer had to retreat, and uh, uh, unfortunately, 
uh, had to had to uh, pull the trigger and and take the man's life. Immediately, there were people uh, who began to protest and started uh, coming out with with the false narrative about one of our officers uh, killing a man unjustly. And I was able to uh, share that video and talk about what happened, and the protest disappeared. So it's it's something that uh, really has helped our officers, and they're firm, firmly believe in it. Hmm. That, that, that actually, Chief, is a great segue uh, into the, the que- next question that we'd like to ask you. What, what are the key attributes that someone must have to become a, an excellent police officer? Uh, as obviously, you don't want anybody on the force who is not imbued with a high degree of integrity, right? Uh, it's just the, the profession requires it. Uh, you have to have the knowledge of uh, and, and understanding of the state laws, the municipal codes, etc. You need to be able to perform the defense and arrest tactics effectively. You have to be physically fit. Uh, communication skills are really important. Uh, obviously, a strong work ethic. It's not like you guys work short shifts when you're out there. Uh, and courage. Uh, courage is very, very important. Uh, but how about things like discretion, critical thinking, problem solving? Uh, one of the things I like to talk about my friend Joe Moravchik is that he's imbued with a, a deep amount of emotional intelligence, which I think is one of the things that made him a, a great police officer, and certainly compassion. Uh, all the years that you served, leadership positions up and down the chain of command, well, in your view, what are the most important characteristics, uh, the foundations of excellence for that make, make for a great police officer? Yeah, it's a great question. It's so important because when you look at when you hire a police officer, you, you're, for the most part, uh, you're really stuck with the person that you hire for many years, and it's a it's a huge investment. And it, a lot of money goes into these it, trainees, yeah. and, and there's a lot on the line. Yeah. Um, somebody can de- deteriorate the the, uh, the the relationship that we have with our community. The list goes on and on. First and foremost, uh, I I always focused on hiring the heart, hmm. the, the heart of the human being. It, it has to be someone who uh, really gets it. Um, has that that emotional intelligence i've always said that we can train people to safely stop a car we can train someone to write a ticket we can train someone how to safely na- navigate a domestic dispute but if you don't have uh the foundation of a good heart and a, a and a good human being there's nothing that we can do we can't teach you how to be nice and be kind and be respectful mm-hmm. so that's that's the first and uh, foremost thing that i looked for and uh, and I, that I would I was I would say that you know you hire the heart and train the mind and that was our philosophy. Hmm. And, a, and a follow up to that, uh, when you were appointed chief of police as part of your your leadership agenda, you instituted training programs uh, for your officers on ethical policing and, and on moral courage. Uh, what were the main ideas that you were teaching uh, along those lines with ethical policing and moral courage? And why do you consider those concepts to be so important? Uh, maybe you could give a, an example or two of things that happened on the street with your officers after having gone through that training and performance of their duties. Yeah, ethical uh, policing is courageous. That's a, a, a program that we taught um, starting a few years ago. And then moral courage training, Chad Weinstein with uh, uh, with ethical leaders he came in and, and helped us uh, prop up that training for our officers. Epic is um, actually our officers really embraced this training. Ethical policing is courageous. Uh, they made their own pins. So it is really a generated from within this, the, the highly respected street officers who, who uh, helped train it. Basically what it is, is um, not just allowing, but demanding officers 
step in and uh, prevent escalating situations where an officer may be losing their temper, mm-hmm. about to do something that is against um, our community standards, our police department standards. We, we actually do the hands-on training and the acting and the role-playing. So if an officer gets heated and, and you can see something as bad is going to happen, and another officer steps in, touches the officer on the shoulder, and says, I got this, mm-hmm. right? And, and now our officers understand that that's part of what we do. And if it continues, it's they call out epic, epic. I got it, and then they have to step back. Okay. Regardless if you're the chief of police or a frontline officer, it applies. Everybody must step in and uh, prevent something bad from happening, and and it's really helped. We've had, I've had uh, stories uh, come back to me where officers have stepped in and and prevented somebody who's having a bad day and sometimes that's just what it is our officers are human Mm -hmm. they put their pants on one leg at a time they have financial issues they have uh, marriage issues they have family issues aging parents all of the things that come with uh, being a human being so we need to acknowledge that and we need our officers to have the tools to step in and prevent bad things from happening when you were appointed chief of police, as part of your leadership agenda, um, well, actually, uh, let me fast forward here to something else. Uh, the the best police officers understand that when hands-on force is necessary, it should be done skillfully and quickly. And then once someone is in custody, the officers have to make sure that everyone is okay, including the person in custody. Hands-on force often should be a last resort, unless, of course, it's an emergency situation. As part of your leadership agenda, you trained your officers about de-escalation. What is de-escalation and why is it important? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, we've we've evolved over the years uh, with how we've viewed use of force. And I know, Joe, you've, you've been through the same evolution of this type of training. When I came on the job, the, uh, the academy instructors in use of force would basically say that you need to remember three things. If you need someone to do something, you ask them, you tell them, and then you make them. Mm-hmm. And there was really, that was the foundation of how we train, right? And uh, so that's obviously changed quite a bit over the years. And we use our communication skills. We try to de-escalate situations. We slow situations down. We now have mental health officers working with social workers to try to uh, de-escalate some situations. We're walking away from situations that uh, uh, in the past we never would have. Example, somebody who may be threatening their own life and they're alone and nobody else is in danger at the time. Why are we going to kick a door in and force a potential deadly mm-hmm. encounter over someone who's having a real bad day and may calm, you know, come down and we have social workers that will call and uh, so we've really changed our approach quite a bit. I Basically, I've always told our officers that if you can answer the affirmative to these three things, that I'll always have your back when you have to take action. And you have to ask yourself, were the actions reasonable, necessary, and done with respect? And if you do those things and remember those three things, you'll always be okay. So, yeah, the de-escalation, um, the crisis intervention training that our officers go through, understanding the signs of mental illness and people who are suffering crisis is, is really critical as we move forward. 
Mm. You know, both of you just brought up a couple of great points there. Uh, as I've sort of observed what society has lumped onto the backs of uh, uh, the police in our in, in Minnesota and across the nation, we sort of expect police to solve all of these societal ills when your job is really law enforcement, not handling all the other crises that we have in society that probably should be handled by properly funding other programs uh, to deal with those things, uh, drug addiction, mental health, et cetera. Uh, do you kind of agree with that, having been you know the one expected to handle all of society's ills? Yeah, there's certainly more put on the plates of our police officers than ever before. Uh, and, and you know, I've talked fre- frequently about this in the past, that it can't be an either-or uh, approach to the dynamics our officers are facing. We Yes, we have to invest in um, mental health resources. We have to invest in chemical dependency, um, all of the things that lead people to intersect with the criminal justice system we have to invest in. And we have to invest in having enough officers to deal with the 911 calls when our community really needs us. And the either or, I believe, is a false narrative that we should stay away from. It should be and. We need both things. And while we do the prevention and early intervention, when that starts to show results where we may uh, require less police officers, that would be wonderful. Mm -hmm. But until that happens, we can't afford to do that. That's a great point, Chief. Uh, You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, and we're broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. I'm John Olson, and my co-host today is Joe Moravchik. Joining us on our program this morning is Todd Axtell, CEO of the Axtell Group and the recently retired Chief of Police for the City of St. Paul. When I was a police officer, I believed that the badge I wore was to be a symbol of faith and trust to the citizens that I served. And when I was a sergeant and then shift commander, I would tell patrol officers often that they are the most visible representatives of our city, thus it's imperative that they represent themselves our department, and our city each day with integrity. Like you, I worked in a diverse city with much going for it, industry, technology, opportunity, beauty, but also its share of challenges. Throughout my career, I worked to better our city and the relationships between the police and citizens. But then on May 25th, 2020, a Minneapolis police officer, Derek Chauvin, pins George Floyd to the ground during an arrest, knee on his neck, And for nine minutes, the world watches a video where a local police officer unnecessarily causes a fatal injury to a citizen. I knew at that moment the faith and trust that I believe the badge represented and so many officers believe in and so many citizens count on was going to be tarnished. When you wore the badge representing St. Paul, what did that mean to you? How important was leading with integrity to you? Uh, what was your initial personal reaction to Derek Chauvin's actions on that fateful May day? And then what was your immediate concern for police work as a career after what occurred at 38th and Chicago in Minneapolis? I had a lot of emotions that day. I imagine you did too. Yeah, I sure did. That was a day uh, that I'll certainly uh, never forget. It's, It's probably one of the most, if not the most significant uh, law enforcement uh, action misstep in our nation's history. 
it uh, you know I've always operated under, under the philosophy in St. Paul is is the the bank of trust mm-hmm. we have with our community. In every positive thing that we do with our community, every time we treat someone with respect and get out of our squad and help our community is a deposit into that bank of trust. And it takes thousands of those deposits to maintain a high level of trust, especially with all of our diverse communities in St. Paul. And so uh, what happened that day, and we've had our, you know, our, our incidents in St. Paul, of course, throughout the years, and nothing like this. But when these things happen, and certainly what happened in Minneapolis on that day, made uh, a, not just a significant withdrawal, but it it just demolished our trust accounts throughout this entire country. Mm-hmm. And the first thing I thought of is, uh, I remember feeling is how sick I felt watching that video and knowing that there is no excuse for what I was seeing there. The lack of humanity was disgusting to me. It was a lack of humanity, and I didn't even understand the tactical aspect of it. Yeah. The, the training was completely out the window. I, yeah, and so I, I uh, you know, that, that was an emotional day for me. I, I, I took to uh, social media, and I, I posted up uh, uh, my thoughts on that day that I have printed out and kept ever since. And um, and I and I remember speaking with our officers because at, at the time this happened, you know, things were heating up in Minneapolis, and we thought they would be heating up in St. Paul, too. And I remember sitting in my conference room with the leaders of, of our department starting to stand up our mobilization for the department, knowing that it's not a matter of if but when something's going to break loose in our city. And during that meeting, we hear on the PA system uh, that businesses in the Midway neighborhood of St. Paul are beginning to be looted. Mm. And that was uh, the most trying week of my entire career as as we had – uh, that night, the next day, 36 buildings on fire in our city, businesses on fire, over 300 businesses were being looted. All hands were on deck and our cops were exhausted. And, uh, you know, I was sad and I was pissed. I was really pissed that that officer uh, in Minneapolis, I won't even repeat his name, um, uh, did what he did and caused such a significant withdrawal out of our bank of trust. But I'm so proud of the women and men of our department and departments across this country who really... Uh, really showed up and 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 uh kept our community safe and brought some uh you know brought some calm back to the chaos that was occurring at the time yeah if you don't mind my saying chief uh, I, I i watched you sort of remembering that day and i could see in you know the audience can't hear you the way i can see you but i could see that it emotionally impacts you even to this day uh, what you saw on TV uh, in that uh, in yeah. what happened to George yeah. Floyd, yeah, thank uh, you. That that tells me that you do care deeply about the community that you, that you serve. Yes, and uh, there have been some good things. Thank you. There, there have been some good things that has has come out as a result of that tragic day in in Minneapolis. And police uh, policing has moved forward since then. Our officers, all officers. Um, we're reminded that day that the you mentioned the the symbol of the badge, Joe. Uh, it's it's never a symbol of power, right? It's it's a symbol of service, mm-hmm. and uh, we can never lose sight of the fact that um, uh, why we are here. And and you're right. 
we're we're the most visible form of government that see that people see on a daily basis and uh we have to take that very very seriously in the aftermath of george floyd's in custody death there was the defund the police movement and many in politics and media became highly critical of the police some questioning the necessity for police at all as a result crime has risen and at a time of rising crime many departments have scaled back proactivity for instance, specialized street drug and crime, and excuse me, gun, gun crime units due to political pressure and loss of officers. In fact, many officers throughout the country have taken early retirement, leaving departments far short of the required personnel to adequately keep cities safe. Minneapolis, down 300 officers. What was officer morale like at St. Paul PD during the defund movement? What did you as chief do to maintain or build officer morale? And did you have a retirement issue at St. Paul during that defund the police movement? Yes, we did, and we do. We lost a lot of our officers to uh, retirement. We lost a lot of our officers to PTSD claims. Um, and and it, it took a significant hit. At the same time, we had, uh, you know, politics continue to creep into policing, and we had the defund the police movement across the country, which has obviously been a failed experiment. Uh, mm-hmm. we, we understand that we need enough police. We don't need more police for the sake of more police. We need enough police, and enough police means we need to rehire what we've lost and then go from there. Right now in St. Paul to this day, we're still 60, uh, 60 down, and, and it's hard to hire. And I used my uh, bully pulpit, so to speak, to push back on that as much as I could while serving as as St. Paul Police Chief because I could see what was around the corner. We continued to lose officers. We had our academies that were uh, canceled back in, in 2020, and I knew that it takes a year from hire until the time that that officer is out on solo patrol. It takes a long time and a lot of money and a big investment. We lost out on a lot, and now we're still to this day hmm. trying to catch up with that. So I... Um, we need to do uh, better in that regard. We need all of our uh, politicians on whatever side of the aisle you're on. We need our community members to help promote the need for good police officers to be patrolling in our communities. And then once they get there is to support the good work that they do. And again, you know, we hold, we have to hold ourselves accountable to the standards of our community, but we need to support good police officers doing the good work in our community. So, Chief, there's uh, there's the American society that we all see from day to day in our, our ordered communities. Uh, but b- below that level, there's always been an undercurrent of crime and, and violence. Uh, one of the fastest learning curves, as, as I understand it from talking with my friend Joe, uh, for new officers when, when making police work a career is understanding how truly violent that undercurrent can be. Uh, police departments have traditionally had these specialized units, as Joe was mentioning a little while ago, uh, to take on the most violent uh, aspects of our society. But with departments losing officers at these very high numbers uh, and the challenge of finding these excellent recruits to replenish departments, uh, specialized units have been disbanded in many departments across the country. Were you able to maintain those specialized units in St. Paul at a time when many departments could not? Uh, what, what are examples of those specialized units and the work that they do to keep citizens safe for the St. Paul Police Department uh, that you had under under your watch? That's a great point, John. Thanks for bringing that up. Uh, yeah, we, 
we were down at, at one point well over 100 officers in our department. So we, we had to make some significant cuts to our operation, consolidate some, some units, and do away with some of the, some of the units. And can I just ask very, very quickly, so both Minneapolis and St. Paul, you lost a lot of officers mm -hmm. uh, during that time frame. You were losing veteran, experienced officers, weren't yeah, you? Absolutely. Yeah, yeah. people with many years on, 15 to, to 20 years uh that was the average average range, which is which is a lot of experience going out the door. So I had to uh, disband the the traffic unit, for example, traffic unit that helps keep cars slow in our neighborhoods, helps protect pedestrians and bicyclists that are traversing around our communities. Uh, as a result, and not just me, but other departments across the country, as a result, traffic deaths deaths have gone up. Mm -hmm. Cars are driving faster. People are less safe. Right. So there are consequences. The the mounted unit that helps with civil disturbance and uh, public relations and helping build our bank of trust, no longer there. The force unit focusing our resources on community empowerment, helping neighbors when they have uh, problem uh, properties and rental properties. Uh, uh, bring a remedy to those situations. So mm -hmm. the service that we've been able to provide over the years has gone down significantly. I've had to cut in, in our department many of the units that are providing uh, services to victims. It's not just the 911 call, as you know. It's following up to make sure that we hold offenders accountable for uh, the crimes that they're committing. The only unit that I was able to uh, keep it fully staff and at the cost of other units is the homicide unit mm. in St. Paul. Our homicide rate has gone up, and uh, uh, but I'm also proud of the fact, and this is, to me, the thing that our, our community needs to understand is when you have a fully staffed unit like our homicide unit, you have a 90% clearance rate in homicides. That's exceptional. When across the country you're seeing uh, homicide rates at 50 and 60%. I don't say that to brag about our department. I say that to show that if you invest properly in your police departments, you will bring justice to victims and you will prevent future crimes because we all know that very few people commit most of the crimes. When you hold them accountable, right. you will have less crime. Joe and I have had that conversation, too, about, like, sentencing guidelines and things like that. <laughs> so, but that's another show. <laughs> uh, in discussions with my co-host, John Olson, we have come to the conclusion that in order, re order to regain public trust in urban centers, police departments and its officers are going to have to be better than ever, better educated, better trained, better candidates and recruitment programs, better pay offered to attract the best recruits and retain the best personnel, one criticism we have of the current hiring and training process for police officers in Minnesota is there is no standardization. It's variable by university, college, or agency. We would like to advocate for standardized training in Minnesota. Our thought is to turn Camp Rip Ripley, home of both the National Guard and the State Patrol Academy, into a training center for police officers, the Minnesota Law Enforcement Training Center. There's a training center could not only provide the full scope of initial training that all, all law enforcement officers must receive, but could also serve as a center of training excellence for continuing and advanced law enforcement training for officers across the state. After an applicant completes their degree and is screened and hired by a law enforcement agency, the selected trainee reports to Camp Ripley, where they would be trained by active duty law enforcement officers, men and women who currently serve on the streets all across our state in an elite program similar perhaps to the FBI's training program at Quantico, Virginia. Sheriffs and police chiefs 
select their best officers in rotations to serve as trainers at Camp Ripley. A culture of standardized excellence from the very beginning extend throughout careers. Chief Axtell, what are your thoughts about standardized training excellence at Camp Ripley for all police recruits in the state of Minnesota? What are the pros? What are any potential cons to an idea like this? Not, not to put you on the spot or anything. <laughs> yeah, but. right. No, no, that's a, that's a that's a great. And, and you had your own exceptional academy yourself, right. so yeah, it's a, it's a, it's a very interesting idea. I, I I like the idea. We need better, um, uh, you know, standards and expectations for all police officers in this state. I believe we have approximately eleven thousand police officers in Minnesota right now. Uh, most of those officers are are from smaller agencies and every community, right? Every, every community in this state has different expectations and standards of what they like to see in their police officers. So the challenge would be to make sure that every community's standards is, is attended to during that training. In St. Paul, we have a five month academy. We've committed to that because it's really, if you, if you don't have a good foundation, you know, you'd have a 30 to 35 year investment that could be shot if you don't do it right on the front end Mm -hmm. but making sure again that you first and foremost you hire the heart and make sure they understand that uh what the expectations are from our community is so critically important but but you have to you know you, you have to have a guardian mindset with whatever you do in policing and i don't care if you're in in black duck bermidji brainerd uh pequot lakes or or uh, uh worthington you know the same should apply but i think the challenge would be uh, politically uh from the 87 sheriffs in this county and the chiefs and the city managers and the mayors to make sure they're not trained in a way that is against their community standards and which is why we have a five-month academy so no matter what you have learned wherever you have worked when you come to saint paul we have five months of you learning our community before you police the community mm-hmm. And if you don't, uh, if you're not um, learning in a way that reflects our community standards, you can't be a St. Paul police officer. Uh, so, Chief, we know that uh, post-traumatic stress disorder, it's a, it's a mental health condition triggered by a terrifying, horrific event that somebody might have gone through, uh, e- either experiencing it directly themselves or, or witnessing it. Uh, symptoms can include flashbacks, nightmares, severe anxiety. Uh, first responders frequently experience these traumatic events. I mean, you're, you're there to respond to people having the very worst day of their lives, shootings and stabbings, fatal accidents, abused children, just to name a few. Uh, yet police departments have traditionally stayed away from providing uh, dedicated counseling programs led by mental health professionals, uh, fully funding those programs uh, to help officers cope with traumatic experiences uh, that they literally experience on a daily basis. And there's, a, there's always been sort of this culture of you're too tough to, to have to deal with those things. Uh, the military is emphasizing mental health programs. We've been doing that quite a bit uh, in the military of late uh, to try and help support our combat veterans, which, you know, as you know, we're losing something like 21 to 25 a day on average to suicide. Uh, there now seems to be a mo- momentum to help police officers and other first, first responders uh, to deal with this challenge. As, as someone who's been on the top of a, of a very large police organization, do you believe that the mental health counseling is important to provide for your officers? And while you were chief of police, did the St. Paul Police Department implement uh, mental health uh, support programs for officers? And, and by this, you know, as Joe and I have talked this through, 
you, you can't make an, an optional thing. Maybe it needs to be a quarterly. Everybody goes to talk to somebody on a quarterly basis. They can talk about basketball if they want for an hour, but they have to do it because it affords those officers a safe place to, to vent if they really need to. Yeah, John, thank you so much. That is so critical. You know, in the in the 21st century policing report, that uh, uh, some of the, the the greatest minds in policing in the country came to debt together back in 2014, 2015, um, under the presidential task force and came up with recommendations, six pillars, recommendations for good policing in the country. Pillar six of that task force report specifically talks about officer wellness. It's really critically important. You know, our officers see things that um, really aren't meant to be seen. Um, by a human being on a daily and basis. And you can never unsee those You can't unsee again. it. You can't. We all, all of us who've answered calls for service um, uh, can see and smell things from years ago that, that really don't exist anymore. So it, it really is seared into your mind. So, yeah, we, we have had a, a longstanding employee assistance program in St. Paul. Uh, funding is a big challenge as we're struggling with funding in, in police departments. But uh, that, that wellness, the peer support, we instituted our, our peer support uh, program so officers can talk to other officers. And then last year, I made it mandatory uh, starting last year in um, January of 2021 that every officer uh, has to have an annual uh, check-in with, with uh, a wellness check with a mental health counselor. And you're right, there's some grumblings um, <laughs> about doing that. Now, I took as the leader, I believe, uh, that I need to lead from the front, so I took the first appointment, um, uh, which which I found you know to be helpful. But I told our officers, uh, you know, some of the officers were were a little stubborn about it, so they said, "I'm not going to do that." And I said, "Well, actually, you are. You're 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 going to go to the meeting. I don't care what you talk about, yeah. but I'm paying you to go to the meeting, and if you don't want to participate, that's fine." But what I found out is getting some feedback from officers who actually came back and said, you know, Chief, I thought that was a bunch of crap. But uh, I really got a lot out of it. And I look forward to the next one. As a matter of fact, they can do uh, more frequent, more than w- once a year. And, and that's, that's really where we have to get. We're, we're human beings. Uh, we all have challenges. We all have emotions. And we shouldn't expect our police officers, just because they wear a uniform and a badge, that um, they are superhuman. We have to attend to those uh, needs that we all have as human beings. You're listening to Public Policy This Week on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1, broadcasting out of Northfield, Minnesota. I'm Joe Moravchik. My co-host is John Olson. Joining us on our program this morning is Todd Axtell, CEO of the Axtell Group, and he's just retired from chief of police for the city of St. Paul. Chief, this spring I read a terrible news story out of New Orleans about a 73-year-old woman that was carjacked in the middle of the afternoon. And during the commission of the crime, she was dragged down the street by a car. Her arm was severed and she bled to death on the street in the neighborhood she lived in. All four of the offenders were teenagers, the youngest 15. Local police departments have also been dealing with increases in violent crime in the metro, including carjackings, often committed by juveniles. Society certainly needs brave, highly trained officers and police departments with strategies to combat violent crime. Further, the courts have an important role to play in putting violent offenders away in prison. 
But I also believe there has to be more resources put into programs to transform the lives of at-risk youth, children that are struggling with behavioral, mental, and emotional health that may be prone to violence and a life of crime. I mean programs where these at-risk youth are taken out of the environments they are in and sent to residential camps or ranches perhaps to provide education, counseling, healing, and hope to transform lives. Chief Axtell, what was your experience with young offenders during your police career? What are your thoughts about programs to help at-risk youth lead productive, satisfying lives and avoid becoming a part of the criminal justice system? Yeah, it's a great question, uh, Joe. Great point. You know, as I as I have been talking about this for many years now, with uh, you know, there's been, I believe at at times there's been some uh, misplaced uh, empathy, I'll call it, uh, from from the judicial system, not wanting to uh, incarcerate people because we know we we know that uh, a vast uh, percentage of people incarcerated in the criminal justice system. Our uh, communities of color, and and we have to, you know, do everything we can to attend to that and understand it and recognize it, but also making sure that uh, you know I, I view this as kind of the the hub of the wheel, the criminal justice wheel, and the spokes that make up the wheel have to work in concert. From the nine eleven call to the nine eleven response to the prosecution. Uh, the bench and the accountability and the um, uh, the, the justice system while there uh, there's some incarceration, we've lost our way in some regards with not holding people accountable of all ages, young and old. And I believe that uh, having having a prevention, intervention, and accountability program that number one supports victims of crime first and foremost. Right. And secondly, tries to prevent future crime from happening at the same time. And I think you can do that in a thoughtful, respectful way. And and, and the parents are asking for it. Mm-hmm. I, I've, I, I can't tell you how many times I've had conversations with moms and dads who said, please take my son or daughter to jail. They're going to kill themselves or kill somebody else and uh, continue to carjack, uh, carjack victims and, and, and rob people in places. They're looking for help. So we do need more resources where the criminal justice system can put uh, people so they're not going to reoffend, and also do everything we can to uh, provide mental health training, uh, chemical dependency support, and all of the things to help them reintegrate into society at some, at, at some point. One of the things that's really important with this is when you talk about you know, a camp or an incarceration facility is to make sure we don't take someone from the inner city and uh, put them in a bus and drive them up to uh, International Falls and put them in a facility where people uh, only look like people from International Falls for the most part. Mm -hmm. We need people who can uh, relate to and look like uh, young people who are in the system so that they have a sense of hope and uh, have the ability to reintegrate someday. And there will be people who uh, continue to commit violent crimes, and we have to, again, advocate for the victims of crime. And if that takes longer prison sentences or incarceration, then so be it, because, again, we have to protect the next victim. 
Would, would we be better served by, I mean, uh, you read it in the news all the time where these there, we, we have these repeat offenders in and out of prison, uh, in and out of the jails, uh, very relatively short sentences, time off for good behavior, quote unquote. Would we be better off if these violent criminals on the very first time they were convicted, they were put away for at least 10 to 15 years till they get beyond uh, the, you know these urges as a as a young man to do violent crimes get into their mid thirties, for instance. Would we be better served by that? Yeah, you know, I, I I've always talked about you know the, the fairness of of the criminal justice system, and, and and some people will say, well, we we shouldn't be incarcerating people. We we should be you know helping them, et cetera. And and I believe in some of that, but uh, uh, but when you commit a violent crime, or you commit a crime with a gun, and you hurt someone. Uh, there, there should be no wiggle room, regardless of of your age. And and, and I tell our community all the time, uh, and some of the advocates for r- releasing people, is that if you take a young person that's 16 years old, for example, that uh, continues to do carjackings, now we could incarcerate that young person for maybe three, four, five years and get them some some training and mental health assistance. Uh, and, and hopefully they come out of it and become productive members of the community. But if we don't have accountability on the front end, what happens is that young 16-year-old becomes 18 years old, and then they carjack a vehicle with a gun, and we turn it over to the U.S. Attorney's Office, and now it's a federal crime where that young man or woman will serve 20 to 25 years on a crime when they could have received the resources that they needed to serve a three- to five-year sentence on the front end. To me, that's not fair. I mean, that's not, uh, and there's no common sense in that approach. We need to hold people accountable for specific actions when they're hurting other people. Plain and simple, that's that's what it's all about. When I was on the street, crack cocaine and heroin were our primary problems. Then later, methamphetamine. I read multiple articles this week about fentanyl. 50 times more lethal than heroin, 100 times more lethal than morphine. In 2021, about 82,000 Americans died from opioid-related overdose deaths. And fentanyl was identified in over 75% of adolescent overdose deaths. The articles I read were largely about teenagers dying from fentanyl supplied by other teenagers, accidental deaths. How big a problem is fentanyl? It's a huge problem. We uh, we saw the trend coming Many years ago, I remember it as a new chief going out to New York and meeting with uh, law enforcement leaders and and uh, chemical dependency experts out there. And we, we saw this train coming, and we we never uh, guessed that we would have uh, this year. I'm sure we're going to have well over 100,000 people in this country that are going to die from fentanyl overdoses. It's a huge problem. A lot of the products are coming out of China. They're going to Mexico. They're coming across the uh, the border uh, up into our country. And they're getting into the hands of people who uh, are, are are craving the drug. And you know, we've had—I don't know how many lives have been saved by police officers across the country. We put in our can in yeah. the pockets of every one of our squad yeah. cars uh, several years ago. Put and in schools now. Yeah, there have been there have been so many lives saved as a result of uh, um, using using Narcan. But the problem is going to continue to be. Uh, a huge problem. You know, awareness and education is so critically important. Having conversations with our children about the dangers of this. Um, the part of the business that I'm running right now, we've uh, you know we've talked to uh, parents and school systems. Even Columbus, Ohio, had us down to talk about 
some of their charter schools down there about mm-hmm. just awareness rela- relating to um, some of these overdoses. And it's just uh, something that really continues to be a concern, which is why it's so important to have, uh, again, a zero tolerance approach on an enforcement related to uh, related to uh, fentanyl cases. We're going to see more murder cases when you uh, deal in, in fentanyl products and somebody overdoses, you're going to see a lot more yeah. second degree murder charges coming out too. It's, it's a big deal. Uh, so, Todd Axtell, uh, you just mentioned it. Uh, you've reinvented yourself after retiring from the St. Paul uh, Police Department. Uh, this next chapter of life, you're the co-founder and CEO of the Axtell Group. Well, what exactly is the Axtell Group? What services does the Axtell Group provide? And, and what is your vision moving forward? Where, where do you want to take the organization? Yeah, so this has been a lot of fun over the last year thinking about this. Uh, we're we're a, a, a boutique, um, safety, security, crisis management, crisis communications firm that helps other organizations establish and build their bank of trust. The philosophy that I had in St. Paul, uh, we're a battle-tested group of people who um, understand the dynamics of public safety, and we want to help other organizations. Right now, we're helping uh, private sector, uh, public sector, government organizations, healthcare systems, Mm -hmm. uh, school systems, and and it's been a lot of fun. You know, I, I mentioned earlier that you know, as as uh, police chief for the last six years, uh, you, you don't sleep through the night. You're thinking about stuff. You're getting the phone calls, and it's never to uh, uh, bring you any good news. And so um, I, I haven't missed that part of the job. There's much less stress in this work. It's very fulfilling. It's fun work. And uh, I hope to be able to, to, to uh, do this and help other organizations for many years to come. All right. Well, that was a great and informative and fast hour of radio. Our guest for today's episode of Public Policy This Week has been Todd Axtell. Todd, thank you for being a part of our program. Thank you very much. It's been great. Folks, that concludes this week's edition of Public Policy This Week. We're on KYMN Radio, AM 1080 and FM 95.1. And we're here every Friday morning from 10 to 11 a.m. Your hosts for today's program have been Joe Moravchik and John Olson. It is our hope that this show can be a small step to having important, meaningful, in-depth conversations about public policy challenges and solutions, staying away from the high-volume, rhetoric-filled conversations that are so commonplace today. We want our listeners to be informed by facts as they hear from our experienced policy experts and then to be able to use that information to make the best personal decisions about highly complex policy issues. Thank you for joining us today for Public Policy This Week. We hope you'll join our show again next Friday morning at 10 a.m. Have a fantastic Friday afternoon, everyone, and a superb weekend. Take care. You've been listening to Public Policy This Week. Tune in every Friday morning at 10 a.m. for more conversation with policy experts. Remember, this show can be found on your favorite podcast platform or stream it from kymnradio.net.